You've probably heard of Ryan Johnson and know him as the writer and director of one of the funniest and most intriguing murder mystery movies of the 21st century with Knives Out. But you probably also have heard of Ryan Johnson as the divisive director of the most expectation-subverting Star Wars film ever in The Last Jedi. Chances are you've heard of Ryan Johnson as the director of arguably the greatest episode of television ever, Ozymandias, for Breaking Bad. You may also know Ryan Johnson as the guy who made sci-fi film Looper, one of the most interesting and original movies of the 2010s. And if you're a festival darling, you know him from Brick, the movie that took Sundance by storm and launched his career. And you may even be one of the handful of people who know him from his short film, Evil Demon Golf Balls from Hell. No matter what your entry point is for Ryan Johnson's career, you have heard the name and you know the impact he's had on cinema and on television. And with his new film, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, the sequel to his hit film, Knives Out, hitting cinemas November 23 before its Netflix release on December 23, Pete and I sat down to discuss his filmography on this month's episode of The Monthly Movie Marathon. Welcome back to the Monthly Movie Marathon. I am your host, Nick LeBarrow, also known as Nick's Flicks Fix, because I am a brand, not a person, uh, and joined today, as always, by my co-host, my co-person, my co-Rotten Tomatoes certified critic, Mr. Peter Gray. How are you, man? I'm doing good, man. How are you? Yeah, man. That is so a rollback to a joke that happened literally minutes ago when we said <laughs> that's exactly we sound like when we talk <laughs> about what we've been up to um and funnily enough at the time of this recording we literally saw each other in a zoom waiting room like four <laughs> hours ago not long ago at all or no. interviews that we'll can't re- i've can't reveal we, right we can te- we can tease i've got confirmation of tease okay. um which is an actual term within the film industry you're allowed to yes. tease people Um, so we did do interviews for an upcoming film called Violent Night, which was pretty exciting. Um, but more on that closer to its release date, December 1st. So keep an eye out for that Nova Stream Network and the AU Review respectively. Yeah. So if you, uh, if you look up Violent Night and you see the people involved with that film, you'll know that, uh, (laughs) regardless, we spoke to some very, very cool people um they were awesome they were great interviews we both we both had great experiences with our um with our respective people which were the same people so uh that is true but it was fantastic interviews i cannot wait for them to be released but the elephant in the room at the moment is unfortunately pete and i can't be in person with each other today at the time of recording which do you know what it it feels weird considering we spent an hour and a half or an hour, an hour and a half this morning doing virtual junkets. We do virtual interviews, pretty much 90% of the interviews we do are all on Zoom. It doesn't yep. feel right not having you in the room right now. No, it's, um, it's like, because when like, when we sign into these junkets, these press junkets, and we're in these Zoom rooms, you see a lot of, a lot of journalists faces a lot of the times. And there is something quite, comforting when you log in and i see nick 
there <laughs> and where um I, I imagine if people are just viewing our our boxes as i can say <laughs> our, our zoom boxes because obviously we turn our audio off mm. but they would just see two like boys like just smiling, smiling and giggling because we're like messaging each other and then laughing about certain things but you can't really see that so it just looks like we're like we've got like a sexy secret or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it's a real secretive vibe, isn't it? Hey, because then yeah. like we can look down at the phone, then we look up at the camera, and like <laughs> and we're like, you. <laughs> you're staring down the barrel of the camera, waiting for my reaction to something. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a lot. We also of fun. had and we had a banging playlist this morning as well. Well, obviously, so, being a was, Christmas movie, there was some Christmas carols playing, and it was so, kind of fun. Yeah, but there'd be video footage of me just like bopping my head along <laughs> we i noticed that at one point i was like bopping my head i was like well people are gonna think we're crazy but yeah, shout out to fun. mandy from glass engine for hooking us up with the tunes and shout out to glass engine in general mm. they do they really do god's work for for, for people like us they do god's work they, they are um, phenomenal they're always they're always great they're always a great a great a great lot they, they are. are um but yeah we've been up to yeah um so we aren't together. No. Which is it's I'm sad, I'm like recovering from sickness. Um, Nick is doing the correct been... thing by not wanting to give any sickness any more to sickness. You. No, no, because you're sick, but like the good kind, and I'm sick yeah, so I'm, like yeah. could it be I'm like, yeah, I'm fully sick and you're <laughs> so just, I'm just sick. Yeah. Full I'm <laughs> Sorry, I, I apologize. I know you can't hear it, but there is someone like mowing and gardening and whippersnippering outside my room right now. It's yeah. incredibly loud in my ears, but I know I can't see it coming up on the microphone. I, so I yep, I can't hear anything. And the Look, only thing I might, I might have is my dog possibly oh. might run up the stairs and then into this room because she'll be like, why aren't you with me? But that's so, adorable. So that's what we want. Yeah. And that's okay. So that might make it. But I mean, every other time we've been worried, she's made noise. She's never popped up on any of the things. So that's true. It, it's just us like describing what. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone's like, doing. this dog doesn't exist. This is a phantom <laughs> dog. <laughs> but we're both seeing it and we're both like, can you hear a <laughs> cute little snores? <laughs> and then everyone's like, the dog's never been there the entire time. Just like, the mower man has never been there, but yes, I'm, I'm a little bit sick. We've had a busy weekend. We did interviews this morning. Uh, and so to get this episode out by Friday, we decided that mm. we'll just zoom record it uh, and we'll, we'll get it done because next week is the release of Ryan Johnson's follow-up to his smash hit smash global hit over $300 million worldwide mm. grossing film knives out with glass onion. A Knives Out Mystery. So it's getting a one-week cinema release exclusively before its Netflix debut. So is that, do you think that's a win? Do you think that's a, okay, this is just sort of pandering to cinema audiences? What, what What's your read on this, Pete? It's, it's a, it's a tiny win. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I can talk about the fact that I have been lucky enough to see this film. Yes. Um, yep. I Tiffin. saw it. I saw it at TIFF, so I saw it as one of the first, like, people in the world to see this film. I saw it on an IMAX screen. God, like that's so good. The biggest IMAX screen I've ever seen in Toronto. 
And I saw it with a sold out crowd. So I kind of saw this film in like the best yeah. scenario because we can both attest to the fact that Knives Out very much benefit from an audience. Like it's the yeah. kind of film that want other people there to sort of start laughing at the same things. They're all picking up on the little things dropped around. This is the same with this movie. This not Glass Onion is hilarious. It is so, so funny that it needs to be seen with a really big audience. Janelle Monet and Kate Hudson. I tell Kate Hudson, I can't wait for you to watch this movie, Nick, because I need to know that I'm <laughs> not alone in thinking, fuck, she's she's so, so funny in this film. Um, but yes, it's a small win that it gets in cinemas because this deserves to be seen in cinemas because it's a beautiful, like the location of this film is so like grand and bonkers that it's sort of like it belongs on a big screen. Um, I know at one point Netflix was sort of thinking maybe we'll do the 45 day window um, model that sort of HBO Max had where, or not HBO Max, um, Universal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, play the movie in cinemas for 45 days, then go straight to streaming. I kind of wish that was what was happening here. Um, so the fact that we've got a sequel, as you said, $300 million movie, Golden Globe nominated, Oscar nominated, yeah. massive, massive sequel, huge cast, and it's in cinemas for a week. For a week. In like 600 theatres in the US or something. So it's weird to think that this on paper will probably look like a box office bomb. Right, yeah, yeah. Like, I I think this movie didn't cost a lot of money to make considering the cost. No, so it was, but, it, it was yeah. the same as the first one, $100 million yeah. budget, but Netflix acquired yes. two, Knives Out 2 and Knives Out 3 for $400 yeah. million. Dollars. Yeah, so, um, yeah, but it's like, who knows, maybe it'll be one of those movies that because it's in limited theatres and people want to see it in cinemas, maybe each screen count will be monstrous we don't know well um, i've already booked uh, tickets to see it on its opening wednesday night i'm seeing it on its opening wednesday night and the cinema we're in where the first i'm seeing it with a group of people that where the first tickets that were bought however we were looking at going to like a more pre like the gold class esque session yeah, yeah, yeah. and there was only five tickets left in one of those so awesome. i think people are actively out there looking for and like not everyone's like us where we're like i need the tickets secured six months beforehand like yeah, that's kind of yeah. like how we operate in that regard but my tickets are bought for opening night i'm very excited to see it yeah. um i just want i just i can't tell people enough to to see this film in cinemas if you can yeah. um Obviously, that yeah. If you if cinemas is not your thing, you you're someone who completely relies on streaming. You've got a great movie to stream because this is one yeah. of the few Netflix movies that you're like, oh, I'll actually watch. This, this. will be actually good. Yeah. Uh, yes, I've we've had many many discussions where once it's on Netflix, it kind of loses its mm. its um, necessity to watch. Um, yes. But yeah, I just. Oh, it's it it is it is frustrating to know that it won't it won't play past a week. Although we don't know this, the the streaming release date isn't until December twenty three, uh, like December. 
this film could always end up being like a terrifier two situation where people have a demand for it, the numbers are better, and it could extend. Yes, absolutely. To the yeah. Maybe we'll play in cinemas for a month and then drop right on Netflix. We don't know. Yeah, I think I think part of what you're saying about the 45 day release window thing as well is that probably Netflix don't want to pay for it to be in theaters for 45 days if they're going to because I guess if people don't realize like distributors and production companies ultimately pay for their movies to be played in mm. cinemas that's the whole appeal because a cinema a cinema obviously want to get paid to show a movie but they'll also only show movies that are guaranteed to make the money especially yeah. coming out in a time where Black Panther will only be in its second week of release and it'll be leading up to Avatar like probably two of the biggest movies of the year it's mm-hmm. it's more of an incentive for cinemas to be like okay we only have to show this for one week we'll give it a shitload of screenings we'll let them sell out blah 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 like it's yeah. it's i understand the logic but and i guess yeah. that's a little bit of insider information we know having spoken to cinema owners about this sort of thing as well really interesting conversations we've had in uh with one cinema owner in particular as well uh about how netflix yeah. sort of yeah. you know how that whole thing works it's fascinating how that yeah, yeah. We we're gonna say that, yeah Nef- netflix and uh theater owners um the theater owners don't exactly like Netflix. We'll say that. No, well, and especially n- not for at the beginning. Especially not at the beginning. Yes, it yeah, was yeah. A big, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe there's a little more lenient now. A little more now, because obviously we're seeing, you know, like the Wonder has had cinema yep. screenings as well. Well, have you seen the lineup of Netflix movies that have cinema releases over the next yeah, few like, weeks? So, so like, like, like Del-, Del Toro's Pinocchio is getting one, which I think is wait. fantastic because I'm. 100% seeing that on the big screen. It's yeah, it'd be criminal not to see a Guillermo movie on the on the big screen. And then we got Bardo, uh Inaratu's new movie is yes. this week. White Noise um will be out too. Noah Bumbuck's movie. Uh and I, I think there's another one. I can't remember what it is, but there's there's a yeah. couple. There's we got a fair few that Netflix are putting into into cinemas, which is great. And yet I don't get Momoa and Slumberland in a cinema. I know, right? It's interesting how they choose sort of Oh, and that, you watched that yet? No, um, I'll, oh, I'll, yet, I'll, no, that comes out this Friday. Right. Um, that'll probably be one that I'll actually probably watch. Probably um, hunt down and yeah. I mean, for reasons knowing that Momo's in it, so yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much the only reason. Pretty much it. Yeah, but what? um, we're not here to talk about Slumberland or no. Momoa that beautiful interview that he did on Jimmy Kimmel. We're here to talk about uh, Ryan Johnson. Yes, we are. Yes, we are indeed. It was quite funny. Like, you know, when we look, when we were talking about the fact that this, these were the films, this was the filmography we're going to look at. I didn't really realize that he hasn't made that many movies. No, it's crazy. isn't like, it? And, and over it, like, his first one being Brick in 2005. Yeah. Four movies in almost 20 years. Oh, sorry. Five movies in almost 20 years. Now six with Glass yeah. Onion. So. And the fact that, you know, Star Wars was his fourth film. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And like, yeah, it just, it kind of baffled me. And you, and it was interesting to watch his, like, I guess the similarities that he likes to, frame his movies around but then like the clear progression of mm. as a director yeah um but you know they always say that 
the very best place to start is at the beginning. Yes. And his first film, as you said, 2005's Brick, yeah. which was not a film that I had seen prior to um, getting this together. So it was mm. it was interesting to to watch um, a very, very student-looking film, I will say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like it's such a first-time movie yeah. um, and not, not necessarily in a bad way, but in a noticeable way. Yeah, as, like considering, well. yeah, considering like you have this, then you go into Brothers Bloom mm. um, and like the clear just like. That jump in quality. Jump in quality, but it was like only like three, what, three years later? Yeah, yeah. Brothers Bloom is uh, 2008, so three years. Yeah. Um, it's funny what a budget can do, I guess. Eh? Well, basically, yeah, because, I mean, this brick was something, what, $450,000 budget. Yeah, right. I'm not going to lie. Doesn't look like four. Oh, it looks like a lot less. I won- I'm- You wonder yeah. how much of it it went to uh, old Gordon Levitt there. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, well, I guess, well, for people that haven't seen it or for those that, mm. you know, listen to well, us do a rundown, where essentially brick is, it's a... It's a modern noir yes. film done in a, like, I'll give it points for the fact that the elevator pitch for this is bonkers because you've got a noir film where the dialogue is in that, like, very classic detective mentality. Yeah. It's essentially, like, inspired by anime in Cowboy Bebop. Yes, yeah. And you've got all of these characters set in high school. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's an like interesting really, clash of tones. It's just this really bizarre mix that, I mean, it, I feel like the good outweighs the bad with this, but yep, I would agree. It's, it's a very, it's, you, you kind of just like, wow, you, I wouldn't have expected this as the guy that goes on to make a Star Wars movie and uh, films like Knives Out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's there's definitely little nuggets of Ryan Johnson as we know him now in there, though, yes. especially with the way he he is, especially his visual style and his sort of very contemporary vibe. Like he's a, yeah. his ability to make you not be in a time, I guess you could say, or in an era you don't know. Yes. And I think that's more explored in Brothers Bloom, but yeah. there's there's an element of like this, there's a timeless sense to this film. And in saying that as well, um, this was the first time ever we asked for audience interaction with the show because um, we put a poll up on Twitter and we put on Instagram to you know ask you about your f- favourite Ryan Johnson films. On the Twitter poll, Brick came in at 27% for favourite Ryan Johnson film. So there's some love for it out there. And our friend Buddy Watson said that Brick is his favourite uh uh, Ryan Johnson film. He loves the noir aspect and the way he incorporates the school clicks into the modern uh, tone is great. So there is there is a Shout lot out. of love for Brick out there. Shout out to Buddy. Shout out to Buddy. So you know people Hi. people love this movie, but I think I know it's, it's it's a student film. It's a first time film, but what he does with it is still pretty damn good. Like if I was in a film class and I watched this, I was like, "Fuck, this isn't bad. This is pretty damn good." I mean, and I think, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, it's not easy to be given the kind of dialogue he's given. No. 
And I think initially, like, when they start talking, you're kind of like, oh, what the fuck is going on? It's very heightened. Yeah, but eventually it leans into itself. And he, Gordon Levitt manages to to sell it. Um, I do think that one of the characters that I have a bit of, I think maybe leans into it too much is the character of Laura. Yeah. I guess, quote, unquote, femme fatale. Um, yes. I, yeah. I, she's just there's like the raspiness in her voice, and she's she chews the scenery a lot more than everyone else around her, and that's like saying something in a film where it, they kind of ask you to like here have here's a have a little bite of this this scenery. It's okay, but she yeah. kind of devours it a lot more, and I feel like that's the tone where I'm like, oh, that's slightly kind of making a mockery of what. Johnson's trying to do, if that yes. makes sense. Yeah, I know what you mean. It, it seems, and I guess that comes with the first time director, yeah. like feature film director as well as is sort of not not fully having your actors mm. under under your thumb. I guess not in a bad way, but like you know what I mean, like fully understanding how you want that performance to come across. But I agree the the character of Laura is feels like she is in the school play version of this film. Like Joseph Gordon Levitt is the most grounded character in the film, mm. yet he is a high school student investigating a murder. I mean, like, for, for those who haven't seen Brick, who didn't watch it for the uh, for the episode, stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and it's about a teenage loner who pushes his way into the underworld of a high school crime ring to investigate the disappearance of his ex-girlfriend. So it's 80% on Rotten Tomatoes for critics, yeah. 86 for audiences. So people really like this movie, and I can see why. I can really, yeah. really see why this. I feel like this would have been a festival, darling. It would have played at like some the, some of those midnight set showings and stuff. People are like, oh my god, I've just discovered this yeah. uh, well, really the, noir, contemporary, weird movie. Well, it was a it was a Sundance, uh, a Sundance. It was like um, one of the like. So basically, after this, all of Ryan Johnson's other films, bar Star Wars, obviously, were pretty much Sun- yeah. films that yeah. premiered at TIFF. Right, so Sundance right. was, and Sundance and Brick makes perfect oh, sense. It's the perfect like, union of yeah. like type of film and that's and that film festival for sure. Um, in classic, what will become a theme for a lot of Ryan Johnson's films uh, is that this movie opens on a dead body, and it's not something I noticed until watching all of these movies. And I'm like, oh, he really loves opening on dead bodies and giving you a lot yeah. of mystery and intrigue and and then taking things back in time, which I thought was really fun. But um, this the heightened sense of this movie, I could see being a deterrent for some people. I feel like oh, if, if you if you don't have, and this, and this isn't like going at anyone who doesn't enjoy movies like this, but it's more a sense of you have to suspend a lot of belief mm-hmm. for this movie. It's set in a high school. There's a heroin drug ring happening in the high school where they are moving Big quantities of heroin, by the way. This isn't well, like little baggies of. Yeah. Well, of hence heroin. the title brick, brick is referring right. to a brick of um, a kilo heroin. of heroin. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And it, it's, I like how as as the movie goes on, it's less about finding the his former ex girlfriend who's played, whose name is Emily, played by Emily DeRaven. Uh, but then her murder, but then also getting into, into tangled with this, this drug ring. Um, so yeah, you have to just suspend belief that it's high school kids peddling kilos of of heroin, uh, getting into like fist fights, dealing with guns, 
also my favorite scene in this movie, and this is where I'm like, okay, this is the like, we are not taking this movie like as a serious, serious drama is when mm. he has to talk to his principal or like the head of the school. And it's the was- interaction of the detective and the the sergeant or whatever, like yeah. the senior police officer is. I was going to mention that where he's like, like Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like leaning over the desk of this like principal. And he's just like, <laughs> you want to like, yeah, you either write, you either write me up for like detention essentially, or you can let me get out of your office. And it's like, wow. Okay. And- but when you realize what, the story is and where it, what it's going yes. for. Yes. Yeah. Sense. But you imagine if someone just like saw that scene out of context, it would be like, wait, why is like the little baby Gordon Levitt talking to an adult like that? And right. And the adult not really reacting to it. <laughs> yeah. and, and I love that um, Gordon Levitt's like, or Gordon Levitt's character, I should say, whose name I have forgotten. I kept going to say Joe, but that's because that's his character in Looper. Which is really frustrating. Um, <laughs> oh, Joe. Oh, Joe. His character of Brendan. That's who it is, Brendan. Um, pretty much tells the headmaster to like let him be, to be like, hey, I need to, I need space to investigate this murder. Not the police getting involved. Not and like yeah. here's a student invest. And I kind of like that the movie leans so far into its it, it's pretty much just an all or nothing uh in like immersion into this yeah. story and that's why it works that's 100 yeah. percent why it works and i feel like you can't ever go wrong with lucas has just right he's yeah with his giant eyes like being like <laughs> a weird like mid-20s gangster but i'm like right. he's, he's he's an actor that i feel like he's he's in like he feels like he's in everything yeah but right. then like never has like never has a really substantial role. He's a character actor through yeah. and through and through. Like he's not yeah. he's not necessarily a leading man, but I love him in everything he pops up in. Yeah, like he's he pops up. And, yeah, but when he pops up, you just like, oh, I feel like you like either like okay, you're creepy, mm. or something really fucked up is going to happen to your character. Like he just feels yes. like he's in a to like die or to sort of push things forward but then like not really take much responsibility for it so no no and he's yeah. fantastic and i think most most of the supporting cast is pretty good we've got megan good as cara who is, she's great That's and she's pretty pivotal to like the third act of the plot yeah as well i loved her her scene in the dressing room at the yeah. end of the reveal of yeah yeah yeah. um i thought she was great but it, this is really joseph gordon levitt's movie like there is no scene without him in it really. So it, it, he has to carry a lot of this, this like heightened tone and vibe on, on his shoulders. And I think he does a pretty damn good job. Of and it. it's the start of Joseph and Ryan's little collaborative relationship. Cause as yeah. we find out, um, whether you see him or not, yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt tends to pop up in most Ryan, Ryan Johnson, Johnson films. Um, um, his, I will say, his, um, he has like a, a voice cameo in Glass Onion. Okay. So, All right. But yeah, if that, you didn't know it's him, you're probably not really going to know. Yeah. Um, but once you it's do just know, one of those. Like, okay. That's kind of, yeah, that's kind yeah. of funny. Um, speaking of the, the tone and the vibe of the film, there are so many shots in this movie that you look at that and go, oh, that's a Ryan Johnson 
shot now. Yeah. Like, cause, cause of the way he's filmed stuff now, like I think of shots in Looper, like with Joseph Gordon-Levitt falling off the building, even mm. like, cause uh, a lot of people probably know Ryan Johnson cause he directed the most highly acclaimed episode of Breaking Bad ever, Ozymandias, which Ozymandias, which has still a perfect 10 rating on IMDb. It is the best, one of the best episodes of television ever. Um, a lot of the, his directorial visual style, the way he moves the camera is kind of in this film. It's just done in a way that looks like, you know, what $450,000 yeah. will get yeah. you. Um, the way he rotates the camera onto like weird Dutch angles and stuff and, and tries to move around the action. I guess like the best example is the phone box scene at the beginning. Ryan Johnson receives the call in the phone box from Emily and the way the camera moves around the phone box and then we catch the car and then the car moving around and him chasing after it. I was like, oh, these are all what I know retrospectively now is Ryan Johnsonisms. Like he has a yeah. very distinct visual style, which it would look awesome in this movie. I always had it. And then that was always because he manages to make kind of convoluted plots end up with quite a, yeah, like a through line. Like you kind of go like this, Brothers Bloom, Looper, Knives Out, Glass Onion, they all have, like, these plots where you just go, oh, okay, let me just, let me just see what's going on here. Yeah. And he obviously, yeah. I feel like he got better at um, fine-tuning that as he went on. But I remember thinking for Brick, like, a part of me was like, is Emily even dead? Like, yeah. Is, yeah. like, is it even, like, is it actually her character this whole time is she going to pop up somewhere like is or the you go like and then when you kind of realize like why she died and like there's quite a towards the end of the film there's quite a tragic yeah reveal um oh god yeah you know so it's i it's he definitely has a way of like really making you think you're going on in one direction and then realizing he's been just like he knows the whole time where it's going he's been going down another lane and they managed to like merge quite successfully. So like he he's in terms of storytelling, like he knows how to like construct a story that has so many navigating pathways to come together at like a, an ending where you just go, Oh yeah, that actually makes perfect sense. I I made that note specifically in knives out about how he handles like, an array of characters and, and plot lines and stuff. But I did make a note for this one being like, you do have to pay attention to this movie. Yes. It's not one that you can zone in and out of because every single scene and every single line of dialogue is basically a reveal. Like, mm. and, and when certain things happen later in the film that like, like, I mean, I guess we are a spoiler podcast, so we can do it. Yeah. We find out Emily was pregnant. Um, and that obviously the baby had died with when she died. Um, and there's this, all this, this constant sort of thing throughout the film was like, there's something more going on with Emily that, that Brendan never knew. And then the small slight reveal right at the end where he figures out that the kid was his when, yeah. um, when it's revealed to him that she was actually three months pregnant at the time is you kind of go like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. Like he was probably thinking about this the whole time yeah. as well. So yeah, because it's, we get, it's how he yeah. slowly does it. It's, it's phenomenal. Because we get like, yeah, because basically when we realize she's pregnant, there's the film then wants you to believe that it was because she had a relationship with someone else. And that was part of the reason that she, like her murder came about. 
And then when, yeah, and then there's just this one line where it's like, no, she was three months pregnant. And then it just, yeah, and then you look at it and just go, that changes the whole motivation for Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who, yeah, who from the beginning had that motivation. Yeah. And then was like questioning it throughout and then it kind of comes full circle again. So, yeah. It's really well done. And, and, and like you said, he gets better at fine-tuning it as the movies go on, like, this is probably a, this feels like a very first timey sort of script too. It's like, let's mm. throw everything at the wall. I want reveal after reveal. And, but he still manages to keep it quite contained. And he, he I think he kind of restrained himself a bit with, at least with this one as well, mm. um, compared to uh, any other sort of first time director who could be like, oh, I'm just going to make this twist after twist after twist. There's still, even in its heightened tone, there's still a, real sense of dread throughout the movie as well. Like it feels like a dark, gritty drama uh, in some respects too. So, I mean, all in all, I think it's a pretty, pretty good film. The final point I wanted to bring up, do you think the brain is real or is he a figment of Brendan's imagination? So the brain Mm. pops up a couple of random times throughout the film, never interacts with anyone else. And kind of gives, kind of acts as like the information dump for Brendan, right? Ryan Johnson's come out and he's never confirmed or denied whether he's real or not. He's he's always just been very elusive about it. But especially the end scene where Brendan, after he finds out that Emily's kid was probably his and it's all sort of over and he's like, thanks, brain, you can go to sleep now. And the brain goes, I think you should get some sleep too. That for me, I was like, hold up a minute. Is this guy, is this guy real? Or is it just like sort of his outward in a monologue, I guess? I mean, yeah. Now that it's also a crazy one. Hey, I also think, I don't know. I feel like if Ryan Johnson is also not confirming or denying, I feel like that's also a way of basically being like, He's not real. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, actually, now that it's sort of been said in that way. It's hard to not think it, hey? Yeah. But then at the same time, it's like these kind of stories, you know, there's mm. it's not out of the realms of possibility that it's just someone who, you know, is real and interacts with him only. No, that's um, true. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, maybe just to, like, fan the flames of internet what-ifs. Yeah. (laughs) It very well could be, yeah. Brain doesn't exist. Also, he's called Brain, so... He's called the Brain, so you wonder. It makes you wonder. So that was Brick. I totally get why people love it. I, I, It's like sitting at a three and a half-ish for me. I'm like, it's really good. It's a first-time movie. I think yeah. I need to watch it again to fully digest a lot of what happened. It's like you, it was a first-time watch for me. So, But overall, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. And it definitely, definitely is obviously the kickstart of Ryan Johnson's career. Like, he hasn't really... He's evolved as in, like, technicalities as a filmmaker, but like that is a Ryan Johnson movie. Like he's that's yeah. the foundation of the rest of his filmography for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Then moving on to 2008, he released The Brothers Bloom, 
Uh, the Brothers Bloom are the best con men in the world, swindling millionaires with complex scenarios of lust and intrigue. Now they've decided to take on one last job, showing a beautiful and eccentric heiress the time of her life with a romantic adventure that takes them around the world. Uh, Adam Brody, uh, sorry, Adrian Brody, not Adam Brody. Different movie if it was Adam Brody. Adrian Brody, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel Weiss. This is pretty stacked cast, like a pretty decent cast. Um... This is, it's interesting. So, well, before we get to that, 68% critic score, Rotten Tomatoes, 64th audience, which kind of shocked me. That is a lot higher than I anticipated for at least the audience score. There it is. I was like, Nick, don't like make me feel like I'm, (laughs) this to me, (laughs) this, no, but this to me is like the classic example of like a sophomore slump. Because you know yeah. how the second film, like a director comes out the gate, they they make something that sort of really makes people pay attention and then there's so much emphasis on, all right, was this a one-trick yeah, um, a one-trick pony or do you actually have, you know, the goods? And I'm. it's not a case of like, I'm not saying this is a badly, like this is not a bad film. No. It's not badly directed. It's just he's taken the convoluted plot and doesn't quite sort of get there for me. Mm. Um, I don't. Yeah, there was. This is just one of those movies that I'm like. This feels like it should be. It feels like it should be really fun. Yep. I just didn't have a lot of fun with it. Like no. I I really enjoyed the intro to the Bloom Brothers. So there's Stephen yeah. and Bloom, and they're the Bloom Brothers. Um, and it, the movie opens with them as children, as like twelve year olds. Yeah. And I enjoyed that. I was like, okay, this is mischievous. This is fun. I liked the voiceover. I was like, okay, there's that sort of heightened Ryan Johnson feel again. Yeah. Um, they're you know they're in heaps of foster homes and stuff, and they're pulling cons and they're trying to you know make their way through the world. Um. And I also liked the adult Bloom Brothers introduction where we first see Adrian Brody, uh, Mark Ruffalo, and it's obvious that they're sort of finishing a con. Adrian Brody gets like shot in the chest five times and the the library they're in is on fire and you find out they're conning the man who shot Adrian Brody. It's just, again, convoluted as fuck. But the way Ryan Johnson sort of explains little things about the con through the dialogue, I was like, okay, this is really interesting. I could... I can have a bit of fun with this movie. It's mischievous. It's it's lighthearted. Um, and that's the first 20 minutes. Then the last 20 minutes are really exciting. The sh- the shootout in the theater is really fun. The way it ties together some of the plot points, I was like, okay, that's pretty well done. It was predictable. Like I would definitely say the ending is very predictable. Um, and there's a reveal at the end where you think there's been another, because ultimately by the end, it gets to the fact where Adrian Brody doesn't know what's a con and what's not anymore. And Mark Ruffalo is still being very like, oh, you know, this isn't a con. And then someone comes out and is like, it is a con. It's it's very, you know, all over the place. And when the reveal happens that Mark Ruffalo doesn't have fake blood on his shirt, that it's real blood, I was like, oh, okay. So that's a sad ending. Like, you know, it, it was well done. It's the middle hour where I was like, I don't like this movie a lot. It's, you're right. It's convoluted, but it, it feels like it's extending itself and it's extending the convolution for the sake of it, rather than having it like serve the story and serve the characters. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I'm the same. Like Adrian Brody's, it's you know he's someone that I feel like we we're not we don't see that much of anymore. You know, outside of like Wes Anderson films, really. Um, Mark Ruffalo, like Mark Ruffalo, he's he's always good value. Um, I felt like Rachel Vice. It's she started a bit shaky yeah. to me. I eventually she, you know, came into her role a bit more. Like there was, I don't know, the way that she delivered the line about being horny, just I was like, I don't buy it. Yeah, Sorry. it wasn't wasn't on with that one. But like and, and her her character is interesting. Yeah. Like, I mean, I I appreciated yeah. the way that she was like, you know, she's just a, a shut in in some mm. ways. Like once once a more exciting life and was basically, you know, told she, well, I mean, she was a shut in for, because like her parents sort of made her believe that she had this like, um, you know, reaction. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So they basically were like, you're a recluse. Like you can't be out in the world. And then when she found out the reason why she was getting these um, sort of skin reactions with has nothing to do with any of it, but she said that she loved picking up, like hobbies and things to do. So she's quite an interesting <laughs> in terms of like, I love the scene where she's showing the everything. montage of hobbies. Yeah. That was like, pretty funny. Yeah. Like, like juggling tennis balls, juggling bowling pins, juggling skateboarding. Chain. And she's like <laughs> on like a unicycle and he's like, I don't want to throw the chainsaw up to you. And she's like, no, do it. It's fun. Like she's playing <laughs> the harp and playing the organ and she's all rapping this, like, at one point. Yeah. That was um, And it's interesting because like so much of the film, like, you know, she's, she's kind of unaware of a lot of things and it's almost like you're told that everything that's happening is what Mark Ruffalo mm. tended to happen. Yeah. So it's like she thinks it's a, like, she thinks what's happening is natural. And then if she thinks something's wrong, it's like Mark Ruffalo's like, I knew that you were going to think that. Yeah. So that- on her the whole time but then it flips and um yeah it, that, that it got annoying for me initially like when mark ruffalo's like this is all going as part of my plan i'm like okay like, but maybe it's exciting want, if something doesn't go to plan yeah like he doesn't want adrian brody to fall in love with what well, he tells he doesn't want yeah. them to fall in love naturally they do but he's but mark ruffalo's also like i knew you were going to so this is still in accordance with my plan even yeah. though adrian thought he was going against the plan by falling in love with her it's just like there's a lot of great ideas here yeah i think he just chose to do too many agreed agreed and like i said it, it just when everything goes to plan that's when it becomes boring because yeah. i'm like have have a fuck up have a like even at the end when he's like unsure what is a con and what's not a con i was like it doesn't matter at this point. I was like, have an emotional moment. Like, let the brothers have their emotional moment rather than just be like, I'm still trying to figure out what's real and what's not. Um, Which is why the, you know, when he, that there's like, not a throw throwaway line, but when he talks about, you know, when it's fake blood, because it'll turn brown. Yes. Compared to fake blood, which will be red. Yes. Yeah. And then when he sees Mark Ruffalo's shirt and it's turning brown, that's when you're like, Oh, and it's that like was a good, said, that was a good moment. Yeah. It's like an emotional moment that you kind of like, I kind of like, you almost wanted the film to be more about, ironically, the brothers bloom. Like you wanted it to be about them rather yes. than all like all of the shenanigans that they go on, you know, like, yeah, I don't know, there was just a lot going on in this film mm. and it's not like a fault of 
like the performances are good. Yeah, yeah, they're fine. Like I, I don't I don't think anyone's a standout in this movie. Um, I almost feel like this is one of those things where because he was given so much more money, yeah, I think he felt he had a lot more like, oh, if I manage to get this done with brick, think how much I can do with Brothers Bloom. Yes. And he kind of went, I think he kind of went a little bit overboard. Yes. Um agreed. That, I mean, also like that was kind of reflected in the fact that this film tanked it did not do well at all like and you go the fact that you went from this to looper is insane yeah yeah like the fact i mean like a, a studio gave you money for looper for starters well, and then true. you go yeah. yeah and then you go from like a i mean brick did financially pretty well for a movie that cost oh god yeah money. like it, it had its like, audience it budget really like it mm. made like or something brothers bloom was like a 20 20 to 30 million dollar movie and it made like didn't it only make like seven I think, or I, something? I think it made even less than that i think yeah. in domestic box office it made like less than four million so maybe worldwide yeah. seven yeah just and not then, an audience for this one but then looper like made for a pretty low budget considerably but then makes massive yeah. amounts of money um so Ryan Johnson, quality of movies <laughs> yeah i just think ryan johnson is I mean, nowadays, I don't think we'd have to really worry about his films performing well. Yeah. But I feel like he's very lucky that he survived Brothers Bloom because I feel like a lot of other directors have perished with a film that bombed that haven't had the chance to, like, prove themselves sort of thing. I, I one of the, at least the positives for this movie for me was the score. It has that noir jazzy score again that yeah. I loved. And this is the perfect example of a movie feeling timeless because I initially thought I was watching a movie set in like the forties or the fifties. And then they're right. drinking like Corona's uh, Rachel Weiss is driving a Lamborghini like yeah. this. And there's so many modern elements. So I was like, I got to give props to Johnson. Cause he's like, he can make you invested in a story and not have to put it in a time period. And I liked that. I thought I was like, that's a very interesting aspect of the movie. At least. I was the same. Like I just was under the impression this whole time that it was a movie that was either in the twenties or thirties or forties, just going off of like the poster. Yeah. Alone. Yeah. And, the and then, con, like the skiing, skimming con artist going after the art. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then like, you know, you see them, like as little boys, like they're in, like they're not in modern clothes, but they're not in old-fashioned clothes. No, like the kids, no. They're playing, like they're playing with frisbees, so you're like, that seems kind of modern, but also not super modern. And then just the clothes that the characters wear for most of the film feels like it's in a certain time period. But then, as you said, like, and then they go to like the bars. Like the bars feel like trapped in a certain time mm. period. And yeah, as you see, like. Rachel Weisz then drives like a fucking yellow Lamborghini. Yeah. <laughs> and we talk about how she mentions um, Bang Bang, like she yeah. says, like, her phone number, like her cell phone number. And you're like, fucking hell, like they've got cell phone. Like, like it is, the, it is that, that thing where he, he knows how to blend genres well and, yeah, put them in time periods that could really go into anything. Like really, like Knives Out could be set. That yeah. story be set in any time period. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, like the, his creativity is evident. Um, oh, God, yeah. I just think this film just, yeah, I think it just suffered from having 
too many ideas and just the execution was just off, which is unfortunate mm. for a film that has so much talent. That's true. That is very true. Um, in the poll, no one voted for Brothers Bloom and no one put it down as their favourite Ryan Johnson film. So it seems like quite film, forgettable. Yeah, it's just like the, yeah, it's. I think it's the movie that like time forgot. And yes. For, yeah. for, and for a reason that you're like, it's okay. Like, yeah. This isn't one of those ones where you're like, oh, no one saw it. You're like, it's, you're not, mi- it's, like, yeah. you're not missing yeah. anything if you don't see this. It's really. not an underrated gem. No, not at all. But one movie that I would suggest of Ryan Johnson's filmography that you must see is 2012's Looper. Now, arguably, this is probably what in mainstream audiences brought Ryan Johnson to, to the masses, to the audiences. Uh, a science fiction film. Uh, action film, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis. It's got a pretty stacked, you know, reputation. Um, So in 2074, when the mob wants to get rid of someone, the target is sent into the past where a hired gun awaits someone like Joe, who one day learns the mob wants to close the loop by sending Joe's future self back for assassination. Looper, 93% critic score, Rotten Tomatoes, 82% for audiences. This was my favorite movie of 2012. Like I, I vividly remember seeing it. I saw it at the cinemas, absolutely loved it. And I was like, this is my favorite movie of the year. Like I knew right there and then. I was, you know, impressionable, 17-year-old. Like this is sort of like the classic, sorry, Pete, uh, a classic, uh, you know, like sci-fi action movie that I was like, this is a really, you know, insane premise. Like how could anyone think of this? And then going back and having rewatched it a couple of times, but rewatching it again for this show, it's holds up like it is a genuinely fantastic fucking movie. I loved Love Looper. Did you were you reviewing by this time as well? Did you go to press screening for this one? I yes, I was reviewing for this film, so I went to the 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 media preview. Um, you know, it's one of those things where I look at it now and be like, oh, finally, I could have had. Who knows the people I could have interviewed for this movie back right? then? Yeah, um, I know. Uh, but you know, I saw. I saw this at the the screening. Um, I I did I I knew very little about it. Um, lo- like yeah, loved it straight up. I then um, took my mum to see it in the cinemas, and then because I wanted I wanted to see it again just to sort of you know you you want to sort of maybe piece things yep. together. Um, and I then you know I bought it on Blu-ray, and but I hadn't watched it for a very long time. Um, so watching it again, I'm not going to lie, a part of me was like watching it going, oh, fuck, I hope Nick likes this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, just because, like, you never know. Like, there are movies yeah. that you see that you love and then you rewatch them and you just go, oh, they're not they're not as good as I once thought. Um, yeah. But no, as you said, like, this, I what I really straight up remembered about this is that I loved that the future isn't, ridiculous like the cars yeah. look like because this is set mainly set in 2044 yes so yeah 20, 22 years from now obviously back it was 30 32 30 years odd, yeah yeah um I, but i you know you see so many films from like the 80s or the 90s that anything that was set post 2000 was like flying cars and just you know weird mm. shit like robot people and like three three 
titted. I'm totally <laughs> like, I liked that this film's future. Yes, we have, you see like some flying bikes and you see like some pretty cool technology in terms of like the phones and I mean, obviously just like time travel in general, but like most of the cars on the road were four wheels and they're driving the, the, what the clothes people are wearing are kind of what clothes we'd wear now. Um, and I guess that also goes in with Ryan Johnson's whole sort of aesthetic that this film could be set in any time. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I remember a lot was said about Joseph Gordon-Levitt sort of changing his, they used prosthetics to make him look, you know, closer to Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, just remember when Bruce Willis was like in movies, like in good yeah. movies. Yeah, um, I know. Obviously, like, you know, it's tragic what's happening to, to Bruce Willis and there's a reason why he's starring in so many horrible, horrible films. Like, so... Yeah. It's sort of unfair to a lot of those direct to DVD ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfair to judge him on that because he's he's doing it for specific reasons, reasons regarding yeah. health. Um, but you know, like 2012, like Bruce was like Bruce Willis was still like you know he's a he was a massive movie star. Like this was huge. Um, and then also, man, Emily Blunt. Like I know at 2012, like you know she'd been in. Like we'd seen her in um, The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. And he'd done like a few sort of, you know, dramas and comedies in between. But Looper was kind of like, I feel like it was kind of one of her, like a big, like action kind of, like I think she did right. maybe, um, was it the Supreme, what was it? Bureaucracy. Adjustment, oh, the Adjustment Bureau. Bureau. She'd done that one. Yeah. Um, I just remember, like, this it, This sort of seemed to really, like, I think put her in a certain league beyond this because it was, like, she was, like, sort of, like, this almost the sole female in this kind of movie. And, like, you mm. know, she doesn't pop into this until, like, 52 minutes. Like, she's not oh, in this Oh, yeah, movie. yeah. Um, There's for a, a while. whole... The, the setup for this film, like, the first... Yeah act is ultimately the first half of the movie but it's so intriguing and it's so necessary too because in classic ryan johnson fashion he drops little nuggets of information throughout that when you finally get to emily blunt and the reason she's in the film you kind of go where's this going oh this like this kid is this this and that like you know what i mean like it it works really well you know because i like and i remember you, you know you watch it and the time like time travel is always risky in Mm. films because you've always just got to have like does this make sense and obviously you know we get the fact that joseph gordon levitt like doesn't kill bruce willis who's his older Mm. self yeah and then we get the whole timeline of joseph gordon levitt living his best life yeah growing up to be bruce willis meeting the woman of his dreams coming clean from his drug addiction, then getting sent back in time. And in that timeline, he gets sent back in time and doesn't get killed by modern Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So it's yes. like, it's weird because you go, how is there the timeline where he didn't get shot? Like, it's one of those so- things where it's hard, it's hard to explain it, like talking about it. But when you watch it, you just go, okay, I get it. And I'm trying to 
tell you how this makes sense. Yeah. But it sounds really super convoluted when you're trying to explain, explain it. <laughs> why there's a timeline with him growing up normally and then him coming back and not getting shot, even though you'd think, oh, but isn't that what's happened the entire time? And you're like, no, because he hasn't needed to shoot him yet. Yeah. Bizarre. I, 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 that's the biggest props I have to give Ryan Johnson for this movie is that he handles the duality of the film really <laughs> well because jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Bruce Willis are the same character, but yeah. they both have different desires or they both have different missions, I guess, within the film. But yeah. the way it plays out parallel to each other because there's, they actually don't spend a lot of, once Bruce Willis is introduced into the film, they only have two, maybe three actual scenes together. A lot of the rest of the movie is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Joe trying to protect this kid and Bruce Willis's Joe trying to kill this kid. Like, like it's weird. As this- yeah, like, it's weird to think that, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is trying to prevent the one thing from happening that his older self is trying to do because it's like Joseph Gordon Levitt is letting the timeline happen that Bruce Willis is trying to stop. So it's almost like I'm your future. Like I'm telling you, you need this to stop. But then as, as Joseph Gordon Levitt said, it's like, yeah, but that's not necessarily my future yet. Like I can walk away from the woman that we apparently fall in love with. Like it's, it's, Really, really, like, this is one of those things we just go, like, how how convoluted Brothers Bloom is. And then you look at all the things going on in Looper and you're like, how did you make Looper work Yeah, when the story is so much more bonkers than Brothers Bloom? There really? is a lot happening in Looper. There is, like, there is a lot happening. But I think because he takes the time to lay everything out but still keep this movie under two hours... It's quite yeah. phenomenal because when you think about it, this is kind of a once once we get past the introduction of time travel, the introduction of loopers, uh, the in the you know closing the loop, telekinesis, uh, yeah. the drugs, everything. Like, there's a lot to set up in this first hour. It's almost like it's two movies. It's a world building movie, oh. and then the second half is, and this is the story about this rainmaker and the rainmaker being someone who in the future is closing all the loops is is wanting to kill all these these loopers because of something that happened to him as a child so i think the duality of it's great and something else ryan johnson does that is a bit more subtle but i think is the perfect antithesis of how much we should think about it the the diner scene where the two joes meet really for the first time and they're talking and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's Joe is trying to ask questions about, oh, if I just don't meet her, then it'll change this. Or if we do this, it'll change this loop. And and Bruce Willis's Joe is like, just shut the fuck up. He's like, I'm not yeah. explaining time travel to you. Like, yeah. with, 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 this is not something we need to care about. And that, to me, was Ryan Johnson going to the audience is like, I've told you what you need to know for this movie. Yeah. Don't look into it any further. Like, for the rules of this movie to work, I've given you everything you need to know doesn't matter who cares about parallel universes or who cares about alternate timelines in this one timeline we're in right now, which already has converging two timelines anyway. Uh, this is all you need to know. Shut the fuck up and just let me play the movie. And I love that. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. 
Yeah, I yeah, I am I'm the same. Like it's it's clearly him just like looking at the audience, being like, I know that all of you film bros are gonna like fucking rip this movie <laughs> apart with well that can't possibly happen. And it's like it doesn't fucking matter. You know, it's Don't okay to just sit back and for an hour and fifty-eight minutes just watch a really fucking good sci-fi action movie. Um yep. and I mean I feel like we hadn't really seen it in Brick or Brothers Bloom in terms of the uh, violent mindset of Ryan Johnson. Yes. This film, when it decides to be brutal, it's pretty brutal. Like this isn't, I'm not going to say this is not graphically, not graphically violent, but yeah. the the ideas that he has, and I'm specifically mainly talking about the fact that, so Paul Dano, who... I forgot that he was in this movie. So when he <laughs> popped up, I was like, ah, oh, fucking Paul Dano. And you just go, he's such, like, fuck, he's a good actor. He's awesome. So um, versatile. And you kind of know, like, he's usually really, like, creepy. And he's not too creepy here. Like, he. No, he's no, not no. He's creepy. not prisoner's yes. creepy. No. Yeah. Not prisoner's creepy. Not Batman creepy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he his character is essentially going through the same thing that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is and that his his older self came back and he admits to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's like, I froze. Like, I saw his, he's like, I saw his face. Um, well, he, sings the, he sings the song. He, for, he's for, always for Paul Dano's one, yeah. Yeah. So he hears it when he's coming back. He knows it's him and he can't go through with, with killing basically him. killing himself. Closing the loop, yeah. yeah. Closing the loop. And then obviously people know about this. Jeff Daniels, who is always great when he's when I think we always forget that Jeff Daniels is like such a fucking great dramatic actor. Right. Because so many people are like, yeah, the dumb and dumber guy. I'm like, no, he's in so much more than that. He's incredible. Like, I love him anyway. in this movie so much. And I he's also like, just he's want like, a Jeff Daniels yeah. tangent real quick. I love when before they get, it's actually literally just before this scene when he's trying to find out from Joe where Paul Dano's character Seth is, and he's just talking about you know we can set you up and and stuff, and and he's like, what are you gonna do when you when you close your loop? He's like, oh, I'm learning French. When you go to France, oh, yeah, he's yeah. like, go to China, and he's like, I don't want to go to China. He's like, I'm from the future. Go to China. <laughs> like I love, I love that line. Sorry, that's and you're saying. almost he's just so like, crazy. oh, did yeah, did Ryan Johnson know things that we <laughs> yeah, what, uh, like where? <laughs> not really out of the realms of possibility to be like oh, China's good side, um, but yeah, like, and then you realize it's one of those things where yeah, if something happens, if something happens to you, that's gonna leave a mark. Yep. Obviously, that'll leave a mark on your future self. Yeah. So, oh, his, yeah. Future, but his future self then is like running like away. On the run, yeah. Yeah. Looks at his arm and realizes that an address has been carved oh. into his arm. You watch it like so, the end of it getting carved in yeah. too. Like so, it's really, so, like so, his future self is like not feeling anything really because to him it's like, oh, I've had this. Like, that happened thirty years ago. Yeah. yeah. And then his fingers disappear. His foot disappears. The foot when he's driving and the foot disappears. Oh man. And like his nose comes off and it's just like the bone. But it's like been healed but hasn't healed correctly because and then you realize it's kind of almost like the address later on where you're like, oh shit, they're like ripping Paul Dano apart, but not enough to kill him. And then he gets yeah, gets to the address. (laughs) 
opens the door, gets shot in the head, and then you just see that really brief shot of like the doctor just like like this surgical table yeah, and yeah, wrapping things up, realizing that they've just like operated on a live Paul Dano to get his future self, and that, oh. it's like that sort of thing. We just go, fuck, that is so so brutal and so mean. Yeah, um, but it also really helps set up you know, a, a little bit of like a, a future thing for, for the film when Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt want to meet and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like, the only way I know how to do this essentially is I'll carve something into my arm, yep. which which my older self will know. And I love that he carves the name Beatrix into his arm, which is the the waitress that they've sort of flirted the with over time. And then he's like, you know, there's another girl that works here. And he's like, yeah, Jen, he's like, Less, less letters and he's like less yeah, letters. that would have made sense so yeah um it, it's it's crazy that like how much ryan johnson just like progressed as a as a filmmaker as a screenwriter as a world builder oh, in yeah. those short like between brick and this it's seven years and you made one film and the one film in between those doesn't really doesn't really give way to what this film is. No, because like, it's it's a thought, Ryan Johnson film still, Brothers Bloom. Yeah. Like, you can tell he's yeah. made it, but it is nowhere near the level of what he started with and where he's at now with Looper, yeah. with Knives Out, and obviously, based on what you're saying, with Glass Onion. But even yeah. speaking to your point on the violence, there's obviously a lot of scenes where the, uh, the Loopers are shooting people who oh. come back. Pardon me. And they use blunderbusses because it's harder to trace the bullets for the blunderbusses. Yeah. So these guys are getting absolutely blown away by these old school piratey shotguns. Yeah. Um, getting absolutely blown to pieces. The one where Bruce Willis shoots the guy in the car and you can just see in the edge oh, of the frame, yeah. like the brain matter explodes itself. Yeah. It's fucking hectic. But the best moment of violence, at least for me anyway, is when like we I'm- see the full extent of the Rainmaker's oh. powers. Yes, with um, oh, Garrett Dillahunt. Garrett Dillahunt. Fucking love him. Um, love Garrett. Anytime Garrett uh, Dillahunt yeah. pops up in a movie, I'm like, I'm in, you creepy motherfucker. Like, you are so good at um, playing these dirty, gritty, oh. gross roles where, like, I need to hate you and you are good at doing that. I'm sure he's the loveliest dude in real life. But when he rocks up, he's obviously looking for the Rainmaker. He's looking for Joe. Um, He works in some regard with Jeff Daniels' characters, like, overall crime rate mm. and there's this whole over overlying thing with the film that this kid when joe joseph gordon levitt joe is running away he stumbles on emily blunt's farm you find out that emily blunt is looking after this kid who she is telling it that she is not the mum of we find mm. out it is in fact her child but she's been posing as like an arnie to keep him safe yeah. and you find out that this kid has telekinetic abilities which i think is perfect that they don't harp on these in the movie you find out te- that there is telekinesis that like 10 percent of the population have a genetic mutation that's all you need to know because the evolution of it is happening through this kid who we find out is growing up to be the rainmaker who is the one who is killing all the loopers in the future. But when he's discovered by Garrett Dillahunt and he falls down the stairs and you kind of know he can't control his powers, he scream the slow motion in this is fantastic. He screams, all the furniture in the living room starts rising, and then the sound cuts, and you just see blood pooling out of Garrett Dillahunt's body just before a massive like 
force explosion happens, I guess you could say. And it is just so brutal. You're forced to watch it for like five seconds tops. But when you're watching, you're like, oh my God, this is fucked up beyond belief. So, so good. I was going to say like, um, yeah, I like that the, when the telekinetic telekinesis is, is introduced, a lot of people say like, essentially (laughs) like, douchebags just end up using it to like as, mag- as magic tricks they're like oh i can levitate Quite a coin, coin. <laughs> um and then when you realize emily blunt's character has it and mm-hmm. she's got a little bit like hers is a little bit more advanced yeah. um and then you know then it's like of course what the child has is beyond that but one of those one of the things in that scene that i also really love is like he falls down the stairs mm. and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, naturally, he goes to, and then this is all in slow motion, he goes to jump to try and save the boy from basically, oh, like, you know, that's right, hitting yeah. him. And then Emily Blunt, who you're like, you're his you're- mother, she runs at Joseph Gordon-Levitt basically to intercept him. And you can see Joseph Gordon-Levitt, like, the look on his face, he's like, what the, f- like, what the fuck? Like, why won't you let me save your child? And then... Because, like, and then it all comes together with that shot of everyone in the room, like, levitating mm-hmm. and Garrett Dillahunt's just, like, getting eviscerated from the inside. And then it immediately cuts to, like, normal, like, normal speed and, like, they just jump out of the house and the house <sighs> semi-explodes. But you realise, oh, Garrett Dillahunt has just been, like, blown to shit. <sighs> yeah, fuck. Um, but one of the things of that, you know, because there's obviously little bits of comedy like, oh yeah, yeah. Like a levity throughout the movie, yeah. Um, but like one of the things that I absolutely just like when I heard it again, I was like, ah, oh, that's why I fucking love Emily Blunt. When she realizes that like someone's on her property and she just like cocks the shotgun and takes it out, and then she's just like explaining like what like I've killed three people in the last like however long, and now she's yep. just like, I will cut you the f- Fuck up! And, and, I'd and say this: like, Emily Blunt uses "fuck" so well, uh, so many times in this movie. It's in some fantastic. ways, I'm like, oh, this is like the evolution. Like, this is how like her quiet place character started, almost, <laughs> <laughs> or where her cool, quiet place yeah. character goes, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once once the aliens yeah. are gone and the world's back to yeah. normal, she and we just, invent like, time travel. Very, yeah, this very jaded, jaded mother. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I will say: so obviously, Emily Blunt's like the main female character in this film, essentially almost the only one apart from we get the very brief shots of Bruce Willis's future wife. And we have uh, Piper uh, Parato. I feel like that's probably where the film to me, you can tell that her character was like a victim of the edit because yeah, yeah. there's yeah. this, obviously there's like a brief, there's like a, a little, there's a friendship between her and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and you get that she's like a prostitute essentially and, people pay for her time and I just feel like we don't see really a lot of her for what is kind of an emotional moment when we realize Bruce Willis is hunting down yep. three yep. he's hunting down three children because he knows that they were born on the day at the hospital that the rainmaker apparently was born. And so we're getting Bruce Willis essentially acting like the Terminator and going to people's houses and killing children. And yep. we never see him kill a child, like, visually. Directly. yeah, yeah. You know, he does it. The first time he does it, 
that the way that that scene is filmed is horrifying. It's like a horror movie. Because, yeah, yeah. Because like he kills the child, and then you see like the general like the reaction that he has mm. to that. But the second child is like Piper Parabo's child, and it's like I feel like we should have felt more emotional with that than yeah. what we do, especially where like, it leads to. You kind of like, yeah. oh, okay, this is yeah, yeah, yeah. I think just because yeah, we don't see enough of her before that scene. So the finale of this movie is, I feel like, a great emotional climax to everything that happens to it's. It's after Sid, the kid, the rainmaker, kills Garrett Dillahunt. We get this really intense standoff. Um, Emily Blunt tries to, you know, run away with him uh, while Bruce Willis is tracking him down. Bruce Willis goes on a rampage. Actually, I should remember through throughout Jeff Daniels like. Mm-hmm nightclub absolutely destroying people and it's such a violent like really exhilarating action scene so bruce willis is like just on a path of revenge now he's like you guys tried to kidnap me so i'm gonna kill you all i'm coming after the rainmaker because i don't want you know my life was destroyed by this kid um who took everything away from me and then where joseph gordon levitt is trying to protect him um and then they're in this field Sid starts sort of like harnessing his power a bit more. Everyone's like levitating in the air. He's using his telekinesis to like fuck with everyone. And Emily Blunt like talks him down a little bit. She's like, you know, I love you. I love you. I'm going to be here for you. And he's just a little kid. He's like literally like four or five years old. So he doesn't really know what's going on. And he he's upset. And it gets to the point then once Emily Blunt talks him off the ledge, Brizzles, even though he's seen the fact that like maybe... And this is Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character's whole thing the whole time. It's like, maybe if we show him love, we can change the trajectory of, of what happens. And Bruce Willis doesn't believe that. And he points a gun straight at Emily Blunt. And it's just at this point where Joseph Gordon-Levitt sees this and he's kind of like, and it was this this point I kind of realized what I had to do. Like, I love I love the the lines that he says in this, this moment. He goes like, I was saying there is like I would see a mum that was willing to die for her son, a husband that was willing to kill for his wife, and a son who's going to be left angry and alone. And it's there with Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like he knew knows what he has to do. He turns a gun on himself, shoots himself. Bruce Willis goes and disappears, like he has been eradicated from this timeline. And it's a really emotionally intense moment. Like, and I feel like it's super earned from where the movie how it's built up to that moment in that time. So I really like how this, this movie ends. It's intense, it's violent, but it really fits with the, the overarching themes of the film that are outside the sci-fi elements, I guess. Well, it's like, it's funny. Cause like, it, it's one of those things where Bruce it's like Bruce Willis's actions are essentially what causes his own, um, his own tragedy because, yes, like, Bruce, yeah. Bruce Willis killing Emily Blunt is what starts the Rainmaker's rage. Yeah. And the Rainmaker's rage is what kills all the loopers. And it's killing all the loopers is what killed Bruce Willis's wife. Yeah. So it's like this weird, it's like, yeah, like it's one of those things where, yeah, the more you look at it, you're like, oh my God, this is all so interconnected. And look, yes, this film is very, this film operates on coincidence a lot. That's true. Because, that is very true. Because, you know, we spend so much time with um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Sid, the little boy, and Emily Blunt's character. But 
Joseph Gordon-Levitt didn't know that what this address was and he didn't know that yeah. this was yeah. the particular kid. He just got lucky with that was the address he ripped off um, Bruce Willis. So yes. Bruce Willis yes. could have gone to one of those other houses and killed um, killed the Rainmaker and Jessica Gordon-Levitt would have just been left in this house and with a normal little boy and, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's that sort of stuff where, you know, if you dig deep enough, you're always going to find holes and stuff. But let's just... For this movie and, and the story it's trying to tell, it works incredibly well. Like, it's hard because it does it so well, you kind of go, okay, the movie logic here, I'm willing to to let go uh, a bit of the reins there. But it's it's tough to think this, but it, and especially with the quality of Knives Out, this could be my favourite Ryan Johnson movie. Ooh. Like, it's a, uh, and obviously haven't seen Glass Onion yet, so we don't know. But, like, I I genuinely love this movie. Like, I think it's fantastic. It's good sci-fi, good action, good drama, great characters, great world building. Like, there is so many positives in this movie. Ooh. Could use a bit of tightening up in, like, the second act, but I feel like you can say that about 99% of movies in the last yeah. 20 years. So it really works. Yeah. On the poll, on the Twitter poll, 9% of people said that this was their favorite Ryan Johnson film. So it seems like low comparatively, but like 20%, 27% for Brick, but then nine for Looper was kind of stood out to me uh, in an interesting way. But, you know. Which also makes me realize probably the one that everyone chose yes. is, which is the most recent one. Yes. Um, so it was the last Jedi. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, I mean. Well, we will say that. Last Jedi was initially mentioned as a film mm. that we look at, but um, going through Nick and I, we're busy people. Honestly, <laughs> we're busy people. I don't like. I, I know that we we say that a lot in this podcast and on the the Pop Culture Essentials podcast. And then, if I mean, if you follow us on social media, you should kind of recognize how much stuff we're doing <laughs> um so this does take up like f- films and interviewing and reviewing takes up a lot of time in addition to just like the general life that we have like you yes. know we have we have eight hour minimum working days and all that sort of stuff <laughs> so basically my point was we were going to add the last jedi um we opted not to one time constraints yeah and two i think because even though look even though the last jedi is undoubtedly the most divisive star wars film definitely of the last the last trilogy possibly of all the films Mm. um but i think because it's like part of the star wars trilogy it doesn't necessarily have like the same, the, the same sort of in the Ryan Johnson filmography. It very much stands out because it's like, it's its own entity in this other universe, so to yeah. speak. Um, but, you know, Ryan Johnson, he really knew that he was going to fuck off some fanboys with that movie. Um, like, I, I, I love that, like, in the latest Scream movie, they basically like, allude to the fact that Ryan Johnson like directed a stab movie that like yeah. everyone 
everyone hated. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and I, and I, look, I remember watching it and being, I was just like, I think because it was so different from what we'd seen to that point that I remember sort of being like, oh, I don't know if I like this or not. I remember visually there were some absolutely stunning moments. Um, and, I mean, I kind of love that Ryan Johnson just knew that he was probably going to upset the upset the hierarchy of everything. But that is one of the reasons we didn't choose it, just because it's, it's yeah. a very yeah. separate film from when you look at Brick, Brothers Bloom, Looper, Knives Out. It, it obviously feels completely different because it's someone else's property, essentially, that he was given kind of free, free reign. reign. Yeah, to, to, to muck around. And so, so we didn't want people we forgot that he made a Star Wars movie. We didn't forget. He's certainly not going to forget, given the way that <laughs> talks about it, even though it still made like a billion dollars or some shit. Like, yeah, it did. Know, yeah, like, yeah. It was still it was very like, successful. Yes. Like, um, so that's why we're essentially jumping seven years from 2012's Looper to 2019's Knives Out. Which you are correct was the most rated on the poll at sixty four percent favorite Ryan Johnson film. Um, our friend at Too Long Didn't Read Movie Reviews did say it's his favorite because it's the one where he refined his use of deconstruction to a fine edge, and I think that's I think that's a very good point. I think that this movie is so good at breaking down not just the murder mystery, but each individual character as well. And each individual motive, like seemingly has such a solid foundation that builds up to what this movie uh, ends up being to be fair. So uh, there's a lot, there's a lot that is uh, to love about this film because it is, it is the most Ryan Johnson movie that Ryan Johnson, you know what I mean? His convolution is at full display. Ryan Johnson has ever Ryan Johnson. Yeah, exactly. It's a big Johnson all over this. Uh, his cinematography, his characters and how unique they all feel, the convoluted story, the murder mystery, or just the mystery element in general, which is something he loves to play around with. But this one is almost his comedy. Like, I know The Brothers Bloom is, is quite a fantastical and funny movie, but this one is sort of outright a comedy film, and it is absolutely hilarious. Like, I remember... We talked about, you know, the importance of seeing it with a crowd and in a cinema. I remember the, the media screening for this and I was like, oh, this crowd is lapping this up. Like everyone loved this movie. And, you know, it in the Golden Globes, like Daniel Craig, mm. nomination, yeah. best actor in a comedy. Um, Ana de Armas got nominated for best supporting actress. I and believe. I mean, they are brilliant. Both of them brilliant in this movie. And I remember like, and that, but that was also a massive surprise for those, for them to be nominated because even mm. though this was critically, you know, what, 98%? 97. 97, 97 for critics, 92 for audiences. Audiences loved it. Critics loved it. It made, as we said, over $300 million worldwide. Huge. Um, it was, it's spectacularly written. It's like, you look at it and go, well, why, why shouldn't it have been in the, in the race? Award? Yeah. You know, like I, I'm like, I'm glad that, you know, the Golden Globes gets, can get a lot of shit for some of the films it's decided to nominate and certain genres it decides to nominate in. Like 
I remember a few years ago, well, not a few years ago, like 10 years ago or so, like The Tourist got nominated. <laughs> Burlesque, Burlesque got nominated. Um, Daniel Kaluuya was nominated in the comedy field for Get Out. Yeah. Um, you know, so sometimes they do things that are a bit, bit, bit strange. But then I at least like that the fact that Golden Globes gives comedy a chance because yes. we it's such a it's a genre that just doesn't seem to get the type of like recognition. So which is why also it's Oscar nomination for screenplay was like holy shit. It's huge, Oscars, yeah. Oscars actually decided to like do something kind of bold um in probably in the in the last ceremony right before we went into into lockdown as well. True, um, yeah, actually yeah good point yeah. But I yeah I remember seeing this film and obviously I knew like I it had been open in the states at that point but I still hadn't like I hadn't spoiled it for myself and I would hate to watch this film having it been spoiled. Obviously when oh, you watch God, it yeah. when you watch it a second time you know you look for certain things but even then like it's still it's not like I mean I mean we can say it Spoiler. Yes. Chris Evans does it, you know? He's kind Ransom. of um, but even when you rewatch it, like it's not like you watch him specifically and go, Oh, he slipped up, or oh, he says like he does like he doesn't do or say anything really. No, he's just a asshole. Way. Yeah. Um, but it is fun to rewatch it when you sort of know everything that's going on um but i remember when i first saw this like i was surprised that you know like christopher christopher Plummer's death happens pretty early this is the opening scene and it's like, like in ryan johnson fashion love showing yeah. a dead body and we didn't even mention with looper the opening scene of looper is someone getting shot to shit you yeah know I mean? he loves a dead body opening and like so we so like going into the film i knew christopher Plummer was the light, like, was the victim. Like, he yes. knew that much. Yes. But, you know, he dies in the opening scene and we see, like, you know, he takes the medication and the medication's wrong and, like, you see him die and you sort of think, how the fuck are we going to get a murder mystery out of this when we literally, like, watch right? it happen? And, like, he's taking medication. Ana de Armas is, like, you know, she's his nurse and she's, like, freaking out and you sort of think, there's got to be more to this because we've just yeah. seen him die. Because there's, so, there's two the two moments we see him die. Obviously, the opening scene, I sh- we should probably say, is the other maid or the maid of the house, Fran, stumbling upon his dead body, blood everywhere. There's a knife on the ground. So it's like, oh, my God, it's dead. We're going to be investigating this murder. And then I guess what you're talking about is like not even halfway through the film, hmm. we watch his death play out. We see that, you know, he's giving the medications. Oh, sorry, Anna de Armas is giving him the medications because we find out that she's the nurse, but is also kind of a friend to him because his family's just rich, pompous douchebags. They're people of shit. She's basically the only person that, like, treats him like a human. Even the nice ones are pieces of shit. So it's kind of like it's just a really rich, privileged family, which... We'll get this out of the way. Stacked fucking cast. Oh my god! Stacked fucking cast. Unbelievable the amount of talent on screen here. Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Tony Collette, Chris Evans. Uh, who am I? I'm already forgetting people. Don Johnson. Well, I mean, obviously Daniel Craig, Lakeith Stanfield, Catherine 
Langford, Catherine Langford, uh, Ricky Lindholm, Jaden Martell. It's, it's unbelievable the amount of people in this film. When you have a film with that many characters, there is that fear of like, oh, who's going to get, you know, who's going to be sort of pulled, pushed to the the wayside, and like, arguably, you could say the two young kids probably get the least amount of screen time yes. or the least of like dialogue, but they're still prominent enough players that when certain, like when everyone's like, you know, when the suspicion falls on everybody and they make certain comments, you're like, I'm not going to put it out of the realms of possibility that these two little kids have something to do with it. Because obviously yep. we know that there's money involved. We know that there's power involved. We know that they all have certain politics and all that sort of shit. Like it's, it's incredible that this cast, this amount of people are all able to have an equal sort of share in the stakes of the film because it's yes, so often. Yeah. All right, we'll focus on like the mother and the father and like maybe a few other characters, but this is a case of now nah, we're going to focus on like the little nephew because he's quiet and keeps to himself and he's kind of weird and we sort of think, hey, maybe he's got more to do with this than than we and think. But the, everyone the, calls him out for being like an alt-right internet troll yeah. Nazi, like he's just a classic privileged private school white boy like the anti- like the actual stereotype of that yeah yeah um but i mean that just speaks to ryan johnson's like continued strength as a yes agree as a, as a screenwriter and as a storyteller because like you know you you can see the clear evolution and the clear um improvement of how he manages to to sort of construct these stories and make this incredibly Yes. Fine like this is like this is pretty flawless in terms of the way that it's put together and it's flawless in the way it's put together but then and then back to the original point is that he shows the murder fully play out mm. before halfway through the film so when you see that Anna almost believes she's given the wrong medication so he's gonna die and then he's like look i i don't want you getting the blame for this i'll make it look like a suicide and then you see him slit his throat so you go, wait a second, like, no, he hasn't been murdered. Mm. He's just exonerated her of any blame of the death. Like, basically, like, he, it is a suicide. Um, mm. But it's Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig, who goes, no, there's something, there's something else going on here. But he doesn't believe there's any suspicion to Marta Ana de Armas's character initially. But as the film goes on, she gets herself entangled with Ransom, who Chris Evans is... So good. We we love him as Captain America. We love him as, you know, the good guy of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and just a good guy overall. Sex. Plays. He's now the sexiest man alive in, now, in yep. official terms. So, you know, I won't fight that. He's, he's hot for a white guy. We'll give him that. Plays an absolute fucking dickhead so well in this movie. When he rocks up to the Will reading, and I love, there are so many good cutaway one-liners in this film, and a lot of them come from Don Johnson's character. I love that he is the classic guy who's married into the family, who is just like, I'm here for the cash, and you're all fucking ridiculous, but I'm also just as ridiculous as you. I love when he's like, oh, yeah, you'll show up late to the, won't even come to the funeral, but you're early to the Will reading and stuff like that. It's fantastic. Um, and the eat shit moment is brilliant. Eat shit, eat shit, you eat shit, eat a big bag of shit. Like it's fucking hilarious. But then obviously Marta gets tangled up with him as well. 
and she starts thinking that someone may know that she accidentally swapped the medications and whatnot. The reveal of the toxicology report that got sent to her and it's so it's so layered and dense but it all works so well because when it comes to the final reveal of what happened and and all these callbacks to earlier in the film especially callbacks with with uh um christopher Plummer's mother in the film who i love that that's the thing as well they're like how old is she like how old is this lady that she is still alive right now uh, and she's seeing people climb up and down the house. The whole reveal to how Chris Evans' character Ransom did swap the labels of the medication, but Marta is such a good nurse, which again plays into Ryan Johnson's habit to do a lot of coincidental things, which is completely fine. Yeah. Again, there are so oh. many other pros to this film that you can kind of go, yep, I just believe that she's a good nurse and can understand the difference in morphine and the other drug, whatever. Um, it's just played out so well. Like you're right. It's a flawlessly executed murder mystery that fucks you up a little bit because you're like, oh, but he wasn't murdered technically, like in the middle of the film. So I don't know. There's just, there is so much fun to be had with this movie. It is immensely entertaining. I think I've seen it like three, maybe four times now. And it is just, it gets better and better on each watch. When you first watched it, Mm -hmm. did you have suspicion on anybody? Um... I don't recall having a specific suspicion. I think I actively tried to not guess because yeah. I was kind of like, I'm just going to let this movie happen. But I do remember when we see his, when we see Christopher Plummer slit his throat, I was like, oh, okay. So it's just going to be about them trying to discover why, like how he did that and what happened. So um, I guess. I, I don't know if I had to put a blame, like if I had to put an initial blame on someone, it could have been Walt, Michael Shannon's character. That for me, he seemed like he had the most, like, cause they, again, Ryan Johnson does a fantastic job of giving key characters motive. So Walt who looks after uh, his dad's publishing company wants to make more money through TV rights and adaptations of the books in different languages and stuff. So, so, and like, his dad doesn't want to do that. So he's like, I'm losing out on money. Uh, Tony Collette's character, the tuition payments for her daughter stops who Tony Collette's fantastic in this film. It's like the skincare guru. I I love that. Essentially. She's essentially like playing like Gwyneth Paltrow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just the way that she, you know, like her whole lifestyle (laughs) shit. And like, and like, I think her character is almost like perfectly summed up in terms of like, the way that she gets her information, how she's like, I read a tweet about. Yeah. about That's my favorite fucking line. I, I read a tweet I, about a New Yorker article that was about you. It's like, yeah, you didn't read a tweet about him. You didn't read a tweet about the article. It was like a case of you just bypass everything. And like, I know <laughs> through this tweet, through this art, like that was, and, and like, she's just, and I think we keep forgetting like how fucking funny tony collette can be she's always given she's always given like you know the serious roles um so in rightfully so like look at something like hereditary she's incredible but like when she's given this scenery to chew holy shit but then like i mean that goes goes with everybody in this like you know like jamie lee curtis is just like she really drives 
explain how much you don't want to fuck with Jamie Lee Curtis in any way, shape, or form because she's just so like straight down. Like I love how she's just like um, says, you know, what is it? I'm like the how she's like, oh, how did I feel like post my father's death? Oh, I felt oh. great. It's so just like yeah. Um, and I think I was the same. Like I when I watched this the first time, I I think I was the same as you. There was no one that I was actively looking at to blame. Obviously, when something's revealed, you kind of just go, okay, Ooh, well, yeah, right. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. But then as everything's getting revealed, you sort of think they're not going to reveal it this early. Like, but I can I can attest to the fact that Chris Evans was like definitely one of the last people I thought of. Because I mean they essentially make him up with Anna de Armas, they make him like the semi-hero of this story. Like he's right. Like because and because he's like the asshole son and he seems to be so far removed from the wealth that you're like, yeah, okay, he's the other guy that I can trust in right, this film. Exactly. And and because that's his that's sort of his reaching hand to Marta at that point when he kind of goes like, he's like, I don't care about these people. I'm glad that their money's gone because the big thing at the will reading is that everything is left to Marta. The money, yeah. the publishing company, the house, it's all left to Anna de Armas' character. Um, and naturally, and- because her being Cuban. Which, okay, is another fantastic running joke throughout the film that everyone yeah. says a different nationality that she's yeah. Portuguese, that she's from Uruguay. Like it is, it is just such a, that she's Colombian. Like yeah. it's a, it's a funny running joke because you are making fun of how fucking stupid this family are. Oh, and yeah, they're so, it's like they're classic, just like white wealth who are so yes. yeah. removed from reality that, yeah, of course they're going to think that the, you know, the, European, <laughs> you know, like the middle South American looking girl is going to be from God knows what country. Like and someone done nat- at the, the yeah. Atlas and wherever, yeah. And then naturally because she's left everything, that then opens up like, all right, what the hell, like what did you well, do to my dad? I or- love that Jamie Lee Curtis is like, you are boinking my father. Like the word <laughs> boinking fucking sent me up and that was hilarious. But then it also leads into them being like, oh, well, I should now be nice right. to her because, like, I can get something out of it. So it's like, yeah, it's it's really Ryan Johnson just being like just wealthy people just, you know, it's it's essentially it's like a way of like, okay, this movie's like eat the rich. Yes. Because yeah. the way that it, I, there is nothing like, there's nothing more perfect than the end of this film when Anna de Armas Basically, standing in what is her house now, overlooking this family who she is like able to say, get out of my house. <laughs> so that they have to leave their family home and they all just stand on the driveway and look up at her. And then just the cup she's drinking that says, My house. My house. And you're like, and, the, and the, it's just, it's just revealed enough to just go, fuck, that's brilliant. And it's such yeah. a good closing scene. Such yes. a good closing scene. It's this is a brilliant movie. Like it is funny. That murder mystery is actually incredibly well thought out and intricate. Um, the supporting cast, like the family, are brilliant. I also love Lake Heath Stanfield and Noah Segan in it. Who we should mention, Noah Segan is in every single Ryan Johnson film. Every Ryan like, Johnson, yeah. and he's great in all of them. Um, and I, I particularly loved him in Looper. But the one thing we haven't really spoken about that we should do before we wrap up 
is Daniel Craig as Benoit right. Blanc, who is there. So he do, he dons the South African, the South African, South American, uh, <laughs> Southern American accent. Southern American, you're Southern there. American accent. We got there. Third time's the charm. Um, when <laughs> we saw him kind of do it a bit in Logan Lucky, which I thought he was great in, but he gets to just relish. Oh, this in, is like chew the scenery in this movie. It's like foghorn leghorn sort of shit here. Which is like, great when it's called out yeah. by Chris Evans. He's like, what is this CSI KFC? Like, yeah. That's that fucking brilliant. But his, his wanna, accent's brilliant. I just want to quickly note, um, when you mentioned Noah Segan um, in Loop, the running joke that he's shot his own foot in Looper is yeah. fucking hilarious. And the way that Jeff Daniels is just like, well, you're not going to fucking shoot your foot. Like, <laughs> it's so funny. And then I, I'll just say... Who he is in Glass Onion? It's a okay. fucking great. It's a fucking great running joke in it because, like, again, he's not a major character, but he just pops up enough for you to just go, "This fucking guy," <laughs> you know. And he like he's just an audience. Like he's essentially just an audience member for Glass Onion. But yeah, I, I just once you see it, okay. I'm sure we'll be able to talk about it. Um, but yeah, he's he's so fu- he's so fucking funny, and he doesn't even, he doesn't even try to be funny. Like he's just he's, he's just funny. The character he's given, or just like the, and a lot of the time it's like it's it's at his own expense that it's funny because like he's like a fuck up essentially. Right, right. Uh, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to to put that out. That, like he's hilarious in Looper, and he has a fucking great running gag in. Um, Glass Onion, and yeah, Daniel Craig, because I think we're so used to seeing Daniel Craig as James Bond, mm-hmm. or for everyone that didn't realise that James Daniel Craig had a fucking career before James Bond, he's he's a great actor, he's a great serious actor. It's very rare that he gets to play comedy. So I think Knives Out in some ways was like a massive, like Logan Lucky was a surprise to a lot of people. But unfortunately, not a lot, not a lot of people saw that movie. Yes. Uh, also, you should, if you haven't yeah. seen it, go see it. It's great. Also, search Daniel Craig on SNL. He is so he is, he is so funny. funny in SNL. He he has really really good comedic timing, and I think because he plays everything like really actually quite seriously, yeah, that it works. Um. So yeah, for this, like you just just his the accent, the fact that he's kind of baffled by everything that's going on and he, but he's just like i and ryan johnson very much leans into the ridiculousness of not so much the story but just the fact that these characters are so larger than life and so you get the whole, like you know you get the shot of the like the camera panning along the wall to the end where daniel craig like turns and looks at the camera and is like reveals something yeah. um and they very much and and gl- glass out he very much acknowledges the fact that it's so fucking stupid. Like he's actually just like, this is fucking stupid. So um, it's, it was like a, it's a genius bit of casting. Like I don't think Mm. when film was probably being put together, I don't imagine people read this on the page and went Daniel Craig. Like it's not something to do. And you can see why he was nominated for it because he's, he's so funny, but he's not like, it's not a broad, like I don't think it's a particularly broad, performance because no everything is very i mean he's a he's i mean he's a broad i guess it's a character that's not necessarily grounded in reality like he's a bit 
out there. He's a bit eccentric, um, that's for sure. Yeah, and like, but and that's like he, why it's and, fun, though. You need yeah. him as the the person to keep the wheels of the story turning in such yeah. an entertaining way. You you I can't mean, just, wait a, to see what he finds out next. Yeah, I mean, he's essentially like this story is ridiculous. These characters are ridiculous. So his character, so his introduction is like, yeah, I'm gonna make you remember that you're watching like a pretty like pretty exaggerated mystery, even though it all feels very serious and with people that you're like, oh, these are like, these are all like Trump voting Americans, this family. Yes, yeah, really? ultimately, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I <laughs> can't praise it enough. Really He's like brilliant. It. I'm like, I don't know, you've seen it, but I just can't wait to see what he does in Glass Onion. Like, I'm very excited to see what he's like in that film. Um that's Knives Out. That's Ryan Johnson's filmography. I mean, it's a lot of wins. It's a really? lot of wins for this guy. Yeah, I mean, it's really, we only, I mean, we spoke negatively of Brothers Bloom and we still had, like, nice enough Positive things, things to, to say. So, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm excited to, I mean, we know that we're at least getting one more Knives yes. Out film. Um, Ryan Johnson has very much said he'd love to do more because what this ca- what Benoit Blanc can possibly investigate is kind of endless. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, what the, the setting from Knives Out to the setting to Glass Onion, you look at it and just go, oh, we, we really could put this guy in any situation. And I think one of my, one of my fears for Glass Onion was initially like, all right, are we just going to natch like, how are we getting him involved in another murder mystery with so many people? Like, is that something that can be sustained? Mm. I can say yes. That's all I'll say. Good. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to see where Ryan Johnson goes with Knives Out. I also just want to see Ryan Johnson do another film that's not a Knives Out film. Yeah, um, yeah, I get that. I'd love to see a Ryan Johnson horror film. Like, I think that would be Ooh. kind of great. Because Looper, okay. I mean, Looper and Brick, to an extent, sort of had that sort of those dark tones. So I feel like that could be kind of cool. Um, but either way, it's he's pretty much going to be a director that you just go, I know I'm going to get something of quality in some regard. In some regard. The last thing I want to touch on with Ryan Johnson and when we put on Instagram, what was your favorite Ryan Johnson film? Uh, Dave Brown and Dylan, two listeners of the show, also just pointed out that we should watch his short film, Evil Golf Ball from Hell, because apparently it is fantastic. 1997 short film. Uh, I haven't watched it, but I'm going to because if two people have put on there that it's worth checking out, I think it is worth checking out so glass onion is in cinemas november 23 obviously one week only before it hits netflix on december 23 so make sure you watch in cinemas if you can mm-hmm. now december for the monthly movie marathon wrapping up a massive year 2022 we are going to cover the films of mr james jimmy cameron for <laughs> avatar the way of water now he's got a pretty He's got a decent sized filmography, but he's got a decent sized filmography of movies that are very fucking long. So we're not going to do every James Cameron film. So the stipulations are we got to do Avatar, obviously, because we'll be talking about the Avatar sequel. Obviously. We get to pick a James Cameron film each that we want to talk about. Now, it can be an underrated film. It can be 
maybe the one of the highest grossing films of all time after Avatar. Who knows? We can pick whatever we want. But Pete and I are going to go away and make a decision on which Jimmy Cameron film we want to discuss while also talking about Avatar on the next episode of Monthly Movie Marathon. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. And we will let you know on our social medias which films we are covering uh, so you can be a part of the conversation again. Jump on the poll. Let us know which of your James Cameron films are your favorite on Instagram. Answer the question. Let us know why that is your favorite film. But until then, Pete, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I mean, depends how hard you look. Um, <laughs> but yes, on Twitter and Instagram, it is rated PDG. You can also find me on Rotten Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Um, um, with just my name, the running joke is that it's an AY, not an EY. <laughs> and um, everything that I post is predominantly on the AU review. Um, as we said at the beginning of the episode, some great interviews for Violet Night coming up. I have another great interview for a movie coming out soon. Mass, massive interview selection for a very um, topical topical film about uh perhaps a giant movie producer this episode will actually be out after this drops so you can probably plug it if you want to well there you go i'm gonna say i spoke to a bunch of people for the movie she said um carrie mulligan zoe kazan patricia clarkson andre brewer jennifer eel uh jody cantor megan tui director maria schrader huge um and where can they find you, Nicholas? They can find me on the internet at uh, Instagram and Twitter at NixFlixFix. Uh, for all my written reviews and interviews, NovastreamNetwork.com. And Pete and I are also on the Pop Culture Essentials podcast, which is Novastream Network's weekly podcast covering all things essential in pop culture. Wow, that makes sense. Um, um, our latest also- episode was Block. Black, I was going to say Black Panther, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, I, I just thought you had were a wrong. mini stroke there for a second. Yeah. I thought you were almost going to say our latest episode was blocked because um, the latest episode has, yeah. has, some, has some language in it. And then I, yeah. You know, I, mean, I love I dropping a fuck bomb here and there on this show. Yeah. We dropped uh, maybe I, one or two fuck bombs on the other, but this week we go a little bit more in depth go, on uh, one of our favourite uses of a swear word yeah. in a movie. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you think about it, we don't hold back on this program. No. I don't know what it is, but just the situation called for the use of a certain word. But then that word was just continually used. <laughs> As a throwback the- joke. Uh, um, but so, you know what? Yeah. It was funny and it was fun. Uh, so yeah. make sure you go listen to that episode of Pop Culture Essentials. Uh, follow Pete be- and me. Yeah. But not before you listen to the monthly movie marathon, because... Of course, as always. As as always. Um, Uh, So that's us, I guess. That's us. For another... And just in time, because we have less than a minute left on the Zoom recording, because I am paying for Zoom Pro. You think this show has a budget? (laughs) (laughs) Fuckers. Uh, but make sure keep an eye on our socials for our James Cameron picks for the next episode of Monthly Movie Marathon. And until next time... Bye! Bye.